Podcast 4, When Things Go Wrong, 21st Century Responses to World Trauma. I'm Helen Marriage, director of Artichoke, a creative company that invades public spaces with extraordinary art. Our work explores how art can change the daily routine and rhythm of a city, interrupting traffic and trade to offer unforgettable experiences to audiences. As part of Great Fire 350, which marked 350 years since the Great Fire of London, Artichoke produced a festival of arts and ideas, London's Burning, which included art installations, spectacular events and a talks programme. This podcast series features a selection of our London's Burning talks and gives a contemporary perspective on a significant moment in the city's history. The talks were presented in historic sites, financial hubs and buildings that survived the Blitz. Join us in conversations about how cities past and present have responded to crisis. For this podcast, we're at the Barbican Centre, a building that rose from the ashes following the Blitz. The Great Fire caused calamity for the people of 17th century London when the majority of the city was destroyed. Today, our panel discusses 21st century responses to world trauma, examining the rhetoric used to discuss catastrophe and the psychology of crisis and mass emergency behaviour. We hear from three speakers. Dr John Drury is Deputy Director of Research and Knowledge Exchange at the University of Sussex School of Psychology. Philip Collins is a British journalist, academic, banker and speechwriter. He's currently a columnist and chief leader writer for The Times. He was previously the chief speechwriter for the former Prime Minister Tony Blair. Elif Shafak is Turkey's most read female writer and award-winning novelist. Shafak is also a political commentator and has written for several international publications. Hosted by 5x15's Eleanor O'Keefe, each speaker begins with a brief presentation about crisis. I'm a psychologist and um, I study behaviour in groups and, and crowds and communities. And what I want to talk about and say a few things about to start off is the relationship between communities and crisis. Because on the one hand, crises such as fires, also earthquakes, which I've done some research on, can damage communities and can even destroy them sometimes. But on the other hand, um, there's a number of studies showing that communities can actually arise from these kind of events. And this is actually an important point. This actually matters, this sense of community that can arise sometimes, because these emergent communities are very often the basis of the social support that people need in, in crises. So um, we've heard a bit about the, whoops, the Great Fire uh, of London and that so many people died and so on but it also it was said to be a period of reflection as people were made homeless and they reflected upon their situation. Now reflection can take different forms. I want to tell you about an instance where the reflection was quite actually quite interesting and this was the case of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Now it wasn't just an earthquake for a number of reasons, it's also remembered today for the very large number of fires that took place across the city, destroying many people's homes. And many of the people that lost their homes in the fires, they made their way to the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And they set up a communal kitchen. And they ironically named this the Palace Hotel, which was um, after one of the posh hotels that was burned down in the fire. And um, what's interesting about the 
the community that started to grow up around that little kitchen and in that kind of shanty town was that its features weren't what we might associate with a crisis, such as fear, such as lack of trust, selfishness, all these kind of human qualities that are said to sometimes come to the fore in the face of crisis. Rather, their response could rather be characterised by the term solidarity. So people cooked and ate together, they shared resources, they were calm and cheerful despite their losses, they formed new relationships, and they organised themselves unofficially to uh, coordinate and bring in supplies. Now this was a, a kind of like an, uh, an alternative society, but this alternative society, um, it came to an end, only came to an end in fact, when the institutional response kind of quashed it. So the, the government came in and managed the disaster after a while um, and imposed a kind of order by imposing a ticketing system for the survivors to get their food and, and to eat. And uh, I want to tell you now, just briefly, about um, another um, crisis, a crisis that took place here in, in London uh, 11 years ago, um, in which some of the same processes could be observed. And I want to tell you about it because it can indicate a bit more clearly some of the underlying psychology. Now, as you all probably know, the London bombings uh, was, was a, uh, of July 2005 was a coordinated attack coordinated series of explosions, killing over 50 people and injuring many more and leaving them in shock and literally in the dark in tube tunnels underneath the city. And uh, we were involved in some research looking at how people behave. What do they actually do? I and mean, there's a lot of studies looking at PTSD and reactions afterwards. We were interested in what people actually did in the event. Um, and, and again, when we, when we looked at what happened, we thought that the concept of an emergent community, an emergent group coming out of this event kind of made sense of some of the behaviours. But I think what happened in the London bombings was even more striking than what happened in um, San Francisco, because of course, in a city like San Francisco, of course, there will already be relations between people, bonds between people, connections. The London bombings, as you probably know, happened during rush hour amongst commuters and of course you know we've all been on the tube we all know what it's like it's not a place where we think that we naturally have bonds with those around us we feel quite isolated separated from those that we will we are with when we're on the tube and if you look at the comments from our one of our participants you could see that that's how the survivors felt when they talked about their immediate experience of being on the tube before the explosion happened they talked about this same experience of isolation. Psychologically, they thought of themselves as a me in relation to other individuals, separated. But immediately after the explosions happened, when we asked people to say something about what your relationship was like with other people around you during the event, they came out with this rich vocabulary, a rich uh, way of talking about togetherness. So they talked about unity, togetherness, similarity, affinity, part of a group. Everybody, didn't matter what colour or nationality, you thought these people knew each other. A teamness, a warmness, a vague solidity and an empathy. And coinciding with that, all sources, I mean not just our interviewees, but there are countless sources describing what happened all the way to the, the official, uh, the official uh, London report on, on the events, describing frequent examples of cooperation, help, 
sometimes heroic, but mostly quite mundane, interestingly, mostly quite ordinary, but important, and uh, coordination amongst survivors. So people um, gave each other emotional support. It's actually really important to give emotional support in emergencies and disasters, sometimes more important than practical support, and it's something that anybody could do. They shared bottles of water. Um, they were courteous. They queued. They let other people go first. And they even did things like tying tourniquets, um, because, of course, there were no um, responders, professional responders there. And um, now these features are not uncommon. And in events like this, and in uh, some of the floods that have happened in the UK over the last five years, you get people describing this kind of cooperative behaviour, and you get them also saying that there's a kind of common fate that they experience. They feel all in the same boat with other people in the same situation. And that common fate is the basis of this new sense of groupness, this new sense of community. And so I think these examples um, point us towards thinking about um, communities in a different way, a new way of thinking about communities in crisis. Um, so yes, it's true that communities are challenged by crisis, and yes, there is suffering and, and, and uh, people die and people uh, lose things. But crises are also the basis of new connections. I've got this slide up here of what happened after Hurricane Sandy. I mean, this was a group, or uh, the Occupy group, that were not really associated with community activity, but did become associated after FEMA let the residents down, FEMA being the government response agency. But this was a kind of new connection, a new connection that arose within the event, because crises, bombings, fires, earthquakes, floodings, they can reconfigure social relations, they can reconstruct them in a new way. And they create, in doing so, they create a new group, a new category of the people that were affected by the event. And that category, that group, is important because it's groups in these kind of events that we need to help us to cope. Because groups, communities, and this is the, the idea of community resilience, that groups are the basis of the social support that we need in these kind of events. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, John's talked about some real crises, and I suspect Aleph will do afterwards. I want, in the middle, to talk about some confected crises, to talk about the way in which we slightly devalue the language of crisis, because I want to talk about political crises and media crisis. And I want to introduce that by just pointing out that in, mo in politics, lots of things happen and most of it doesn't matter. Very little is important in politics, so there's always a lot to respond to. And does anybody here remember the resignation of Maria Miller? Does anybody really remember who Maria Miller is? Can anybody tell me why she resigned? I analyze politics for a living, and I can't remember why she resigned. I can remember, though, that that event, stretched out over five days, was written up as a major crisis for David Cameron's leadership of the Labour Party for a week in all the newspapers tabloid and broadsheet, and that lead was followed on the, all the BBC programmes and all the independent news programmes. It was a major crisis engulfing the Tory leader. I, maybe one of you can remember why she resigned. I certainly can't. It wasn't a crisis in any meaningful sense. It may have been for Miriam, Miriam Miller, uh, but it wasn't for anybody else. 
it was just an event of the kind that happens in politics. But it was written up as apocalyptically, as if some major consequences were about to follow. And of course, they didn't. The waters washed over and we carried on. And that happens all the time. And the, when there are political crises, they have a texture of their own and they have consequences. And there are plenty of examples of the, where that's the case. The defining idea of crisis in modern politics was, was actually coined by the sun. When James Callaghan came back from Guadeloupe for an economic minister's meeting in 1978, he landed on the tarmac and he was asked by a journalist about the economic travails the government was going through. And he said words to the effect of crisis, what crisis? He didn't say those words, actually. They were the headline in the paper the next day. He said something much less pithy and quotable. Most people at the appropriate moments don't say incredibly brilliant things that go into anthologies. They say slightly boring things, and Callahan did, and his words are lost. But pressed into the sort of discipline of a newspaper headline, that was crisis, what crisis? Now, you might say that's amplifying something, exaggerating, saying something Callahan didn't say, it's become attached to him. But actually, it encapsulated the truth, which was the country was seriously in a crisis. There was a genuine texture to the time, and that was a, that was a truth. That was a, a perfectly reasonable way of, of capturing what was, in fact, going on. And subsequently, that was demonstrated by Callaghan being beaten by Margaret Thatcher in the next election. So the crisis was real. And my point is, it was not possible to withstand it. A serious crisis results in your resignation. Let's take some other examples. Margaret Thatcher and the poll tax. What can you do once you've made that fatal decision to press ahead with a policy like that? Well, nothing. You're, you're, the die is cast. The crisis is on you, and it involves you, in the end, losing. Eden in 1956, and Suez likewise. Major, John Major and Black Wednesday. He managed to remain as Prime Minister for five years after that, just because of the electoral cycle. But his political fortunes were over. When interest rates are going up to 15% in a single day, that's it, you're finished politically. That crisis has engulfed you. There's nothing you can do. You might say the same about Blair and Iraq, or that's a more complex um, issue because Blair won an election after Iraq. Um, and, but I think it's engulfed him in other ways subsequently, and of him personally rather than his government. Uh, and David Cameron and the European Union. I mean, there's a serious crisis for David Cameron. He's just lost the, the referendum on the European Union. Well, the crisis, his own crisis, is solved pretty easily. He just resigns. And that's it. The crisis has immediate and, and, and serious detrimental consequences because it cannot be withstood. So therefore, the ones which can be withstood are, by definition, the less important ones, the Maria Miller type of variety. And there are a set of principles and things uh, of a much less um, momentous nature, but they're quite similar to the things uh, John was, was saying. In politics, what you need to do is demonstrate visible authority immediately. You've got to show you're on top of events very fast. That usually involves a sort of calculated untruth because you're not on top of events. I remember sitting in the cabinet as an observer on the day of 7-7. And I was there when the permanent secretary brought in a note to Charles Clark, the home secretary, to say that something horrible had happened on the tube. At that point, we didn't know. It was still thought it may be some colossal electrical failure or of the kind that never really happens, but you always hope is the cause. And, but there was a sense that something huge had taken place. And the government went into overdrive with all the relevant committees and all the infrastructure there with government, and it all started to happen. Now, whether they're 
meaningful or not, whether they were successful or not, is something you need to look at in retrospect. But they conveyed the sense of authority at the time. I should also say, and I've been very disobliging about him in other contexts, but Ken Livingston was brilliant. Uh, Livingston spoke with great eloquence and great dignity uh, on, on the day, and he spoke for London. And that's a very important part of what a political leader can do uh, and must do. And there were plenty of us who didn't think Ken Livingston was up to that, but he proved that he absolutely was. You need the response to be fast, too. You haven't got long. Uh, a vacuum in news terms happens very quickly, so you've got to be quick on it. Uh, this is particularly true when the events are really momentous, like 7-7, or like Gordon Brown with the 2008 financial crisis. And Gordon Brown's prime ministerial time was not particularly distinguished, but the one exception to that is when he, in a sense, got his old job back. He became chancellor again when the financial crisis broke, and he responded with great skill uh, and quickly, and Britain led a political response to the crisis, without which it would have been much more severe and much worse. So that was good leadership, which turned something around. Third principle, your information you put out has to be, as far as it can be, complete, accurate, and consistent. Now, as I said before, you don't, you're not always in full possession of the facts, but you need to get out everything that you know. And if you know everything at the start, don't drip feed it out. David Cameron did this with the Panama Papers, where he was less than forthcoming about what he knew at the beginning, and he was forced to put it out there slowly. And the, I mean, it's the classic cliche about the cover-up being worse than the event itself. Um, it's not exactly Watergate, the Panama Papers, but it conveyed an impression of guilt of a far greater nature than was in fact the truth, because he hadn't been candid. And you immediately invited to think, well, why are you not being candid? What have you got to hide? Turns out he didn't have a great deal to hide other than his dignity and his thought that this was a private event. But that had gone. He had to get it out and he made a, a mistake. And then finally, fifth principle, try and manage the expectations of the duration and the scale of the event, if you can. Um, that's not to say downplay it. Although the most famous example in, historically of doing this is someone who absolutely did downplay it. If we had our current standards of political truth and falsehood applied to politicians of yesteryear, there's absolutely no way Winston Churchill would have survived the war. Because those speeches, the greatest series of political speeches ever given, in my view, in the House of Commons in the summer of 1940, were basically comprised of lies. He more, he more or less told the public that it was all going to be fine. Nobody thought that. It was barely plausible that it was all going to be fine. Every other country had fallen. The Germans were contemplating an invasion. And he was, we were in serious peril. It was a serious crisis. But he had to do two things. He had to stay just on the right side of truth, whilst at the same time inspiring a nation to, to fight and to, and to carry on. And he did so. And that's what rhetoric did. And that is the duplicity that's right in the heart of rhetoric from the very beginning. Aristophanes first coins it, that rhetoric is on the one hand inspirational speech, but it's also on the other, it has the connotation of being slightly dubious. It's just rhetoric. It's not quite truth. And that's, that's always there in political speech. It's not quite truth, because it's there to try and inspire and persuade, and therefore you're stretching a case all the time. And that's what you do, and I think that's intrinsic to politics. I don't think it's, and we, I think we'll talk later about whether it's got worse these days. And Mark Thompson, the former director of the BBC, has just written a big book, now runs the New York Times, called Enough Said, in which he argues it is worse now. It's got a lot worse. And it's an interesting question, which we'll come back to.
I just want to end with a thought that um, Rahm Emanuel, the former chief of staff to Barack Obama, now mayor of Chicago, said rather brilliantly, never let a good crisis go to waste. And in a way, it's what John was saying, that things spring up out of crises, which we wouldn't wish the crisis, but some of the responses are heartening and some, some good things occur uh, out of them. I mean, in politics, we're not talking about the same level of consequences, certainly not in the rich democracies as, as some people dying in an earthquake. Uh, but crises can be really good generative things in politics too. A crisis tells you, a serious one tells you, adapt or die. And you can adapt, and people do, and they, they do well out of it, and their, their reputations in, increase as a result of a, an excellent response to a crisis, and also sometimes with good consequences. And I'll just finish on what I think is the currently pertinent political crisis in Britain, which is the crisis of the Labour Party. The Labour Party, make no mistake, is in an existential crisis. It is in the grip of people who do not understand its history as a parliamentary force, who regard it as a social movement. Those two things are totally opposites to one another. They're both entirely valid things to do, but they are opposite things. The Labour Party's first clause of its constitution commits it to being a parliamentary force to win power in general elections. That's entirely separate from trying to build a social movement for a narrow ideological position. Those two things cannot be combined. And at the moment, there's an attempt to combine them. There's an intellectual crisis because the Labour Party's support is made up of a very large bulk of people in London who have done quite well out of globalisation, who are liberal cosmopolitans, uh, people in a way like me. And then its other big block of support is people like my family who live in the old Labour heartlands who have not done so well out of globalisation and for whom immigration becomes a sort of symbol of their dissatisfaction of, of lives in which they don't feel they've got a great deal from politics. Trying to combine those two groups is also incredibly difficult, uh, an intellectual crisis. And when all these crises add up with no solution in sight, they end up being existential. You end up fearing for the future of your organisation. And that's where good leadership comes in. And the Labour Party therefore desperately needs uh, good leadership. And it needs it on those five principles uh, I've managed at the moment, it doesn't have it. And a crisis then of a really serious order can realign politics. Most of them are not. Maria Miller didn't realign the Tory party, but the referendum did, and the Labour Party could yet be altered by its crisis. There's a lot to think about there, and um, we will get into it. But first, we're going to hear from Ella some thoughts. Yes, I mean, coming from Turkey, crisis is a word I have to think about pretty often. And it's funny, we don't even have the word crisis in Turkish. I mean, we use the word kriz, which is borrowed from, um, from Western languages. But um, for a society that has so many crises, you know, we don't have the linguistic equivalent for that. I, I do think about crisis, and I do also observe how one crisis triggers another. It is not crisis per se, I agree, um, to, to follow up on what you said, but the way we easily get used to crisis, that worries me in a way, because 
with that comes a kind of indifference, a kind of numbness, which is very, very dangerous. And within that climate of numbness, you can sow the seeds of all kinds of extremism, all kinds of ultranationalism, all kinds of ultra-religiosity, xenophobia. They breed on that soil of numbness and, and indifference. As a writer, as a novelist, to me, it is of big interest, those existential crises. Um, I'm interested in human, human beings, individuals, and I think we are all composed of conflicting selves, you know, somehow managing to coexist, to live together. But we all have inner clashes, and it, that's good, that is healthy, as long as we can build an inner democracy. But most of the time we try to suppress those voices inside, um, try to ignore the sides that we do not want to embrace until something happens and we cannot ignore it any longer. I personally um, faced this, I personally experienced this when I had a postpartum depression after the birth of our first child. And in a way, it was an individual crisis, an existential crisis. And it taught me a lot because as a writer, I'd always thought that my imagination is, you know, mine. Uh, all I need is a pen and a paper, and I will always write. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything else. Stories were endless. Words were endless. And for the first time in my life, I couldn't write. And so I had to stop and think, what does it mean to write? Where does creativity come? Am I the, you know, the controller? Does it, um, do I tap into a more creative zone? In, in other words, questions that I wouldn't normally ask myself. And I also realized that within myself, there were like six different, I call them Thumbelinas. I wrote a book about this called Black Milk, which, which talks about depression, but talks about depression with humor. And I realized I had these six different ellipses, each one pulling me in a different direction. And I never had um, given them an equal chance. It was also always one particular side of me the one I saw as more intellectual, more bookish, you know, the writerly side of me that I put at the top. So it was a monarchy without any democracy. And there came a moment when I went through this depression when the other, the oppressed elites, uh, toppled down the monarch. And then there was pure anarchy, of course, after this, um, after this big shift in, in my life. Eventually, I managed to build some kind of inner democracy, but it taught me the value of you know, I started thinking, we always talk about democracy as if it's something external to us, but I also believe it needs to be internal. So coming back to what you said, crisis, yes, they are incredibly important to perhaps remind us of the value of coexistence. You know, what are our shared values? I experienced this after the earthquake in Istanbul. It was a, it was a big moment in my life. I was in Istanbul at the time. This is an earthquake that left more than 10,000 people dead. And when I moved out, when I walked, run out onto the street, I never forget that scene. Uh, I wrote about it in a, in a little story. Um, I saw this transsexual who lived on my street and this very conservative, almost fundamentalist grocer who would never talk to her, who would never sell cigarettes to her. Uh, he refused to sell alcohol in his grocery store. He, I saw him you know, offering her uh, a cigarette out of his own pack because in the face of death all of a sudden it didn't matter whether you were this or that something you know all those identity politics evaporated now what makes me sad is it lasted only one night the next day you go back to your old stereotypes biases 
So I am interested in this in this concept of crisis, both from a more individual perspective, but also from social, cultural angles. And I live in a country in which almost every day there's a crisis. You know, bombs, suicide attacks, a horrible coup attempt, and now purges. The things that in a normal democracy would shake everyone, somehow you get used to it. There was this summer um, a cartoon, a comic, you know, um, in, in a magazine in Turkey. People were swimming in the, in the sea, uh, and there's a foreigner swimming, and, and he panics because there are sharks, and, and the foreigner is trying to run away. But the Turks are swimming in the sea, and, and, and people are saying, you know, we, we got used to so many things. Sharks don't scare us anymore. It makes you smile, it makes you cry, because you get used to things that you shouldn't get used to as a, as a human being. The problem is, time runs so fast, you know, things are so accelerated, there's almost no time to stop and think and contemplate. So there's no time for introspection, because every day or every week something else happens, and then something else happens. And when there's no introspection, you can't question yourself as a nation, as an individual, as, as a culture. And I find that very, very dangerous. Because moments of crisis, when they are combined with amnesia, collective amnesia, they breed conspiracy theories. They breed paranoia. So yes, I think there's an ongoing crisis, obviously in my motherland, but also in the region across the Middle East, I observe it. I also see a major crisis in terms of gender relations. More and more I see this balance has been broken between more masculine energy and feminine energy. Women are being pushed back into the private space. I think it makes a huge difference that women do not exist in the public space uh, as they should. But I also observe a major crisis in, in, in democracy, in faith in democracy. I sometimes, you know, when I talk with my friends in, in England, in France, I realize how easily they take things for granted because we do, we have seen how fast we can lose those rights. And time doesn't necessarily move forward. It sometimes goes backwards. You know, it draws circles sometimes. So time is not necessarily progressive. We can make the mistakes that our ancestors made not that long ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. What worries me is, um, I think more and more people are thinking, especially when it comes to the Muslim world, especially when it comes to the Middle East, people think that they have to make a choice between a potential crisis and stability. And in order to avoid a potential crisis, because the Arab Spring was such a huge failure, very disappointing for many people, it was very sad, the entire experience. Now, many people are saying, including politicians and diplomats, better to keep the status quo, even though that status quo is not a democracy, because let's choose stability over um, a potential crisis. And I find that tendency also very dangerous. At the end of the day, I think we are obviously living in a very interconnected world. Our destinies are connected, our stories are connected. It is a, an illusion to think that if I surround myself with walls, if I am surrounded by people who are exactly like me, I will be safer. That is an illusion. It's an illusion to believe that sameness is going to bring safety. It is just the exact opposite what we need. We need more cosmopolitanism. We need more diversity. We need more integration to listen to each other, more interaction. And um, I think what makes the the possibility of crisis, international crisis, more dangerous now is the way 
one crisis triggers another and that triggers another because we are so interconnected. What's happening in Turkey affects what will happen in the Middle East. That, that affects what will happen in, in Europe. So the increase of, for instance, Islamophobia creates more anti-Western sentiments in the Middle East. More anti-Western sentiments in one part of the world creates more xenophobia elsewhere. We are all, all in this together. Um, and therefore, as an individual, even though I don't see crisis as n not necessarily an absolutely bad thing, for a, for a crisis to be turned into a, into a good outcome, I think what we need is, first of all, to talk about it, to face it, uh, introspection, you know, analysis, but also diversity of voices. We need to be able to look at it from multiple angles. Thank you. I'm struck that we haven't really defined crisis um, and I'm also struck by the notion that um, does crisis always have to lead to change? What do you think, John? Well, no, and I think you've given some examples where and, and you, you, you as well, uh, Philip, where it's actually used to reinforce the status quo. I mean, there's a book by Naomi Klein of that, of, uh, making that argument called Disaster Capitalism, which is a bit pessimistic. I mean, the, the example I gave from, from the earthquake was written by somebody who kind of opposed the Naomi Klein argument. as well, look, there's also this stuff going on. So it kind of depends on the balance of forces. Like, if, if, the, if the forces of conservatism and the status quo are more powerful, then, then yes, it will be used to those ends. Um, I mean, it's quite interesting. I, I, when I, I talked about the, the, the earthquake, that there was this community that it stopped being an alternative when the state did the job of looking after people. So there was this kind of energy, this dynamic, which actually lost, uh, lost power, lost its flow once the state stepped in. So we talk about community, community resilience. Community resilience is a necessity, but how do we facilitate it? How do we facilitate communities to act in a kind of autonomous way and do these positive things? The danger is sometimes that the state might actually inhibit the tendencies of people to act in those ways because the state is slightly anxious about those uh, autonomous groups doing things that might not be um, part of the state's agenda. What do, you, what do you think about that? I Phil? think in politics, a crisis is defined by leading to change. Mm. I think it does. Um, that's not to say there aren't elements of the status quo that get restored, because there always are. You always get both things at once. So the 2008 financial crisis, for example, which was a strong political response. Now, in one sense, you look at the regulatory systems in the UK and the US, and you say, well, they're quite similar to what they were. Um, maybe there hasn't been much change. That, that some elements of the status quo have carried on, business as usual. And yet there was also a very profound change occurred out of the, that event. Notably, in this country, our public finances were in a terrible state of disrepair because our tax revenues fell so sharply, which led a government to install an austerity program and, and drastically cut public spending, which had a series of consequences for the recipients of that money. The consequences were very severe and the change was very obvious. So that crisis did lead to manifest changes all over the place. And I think in politics it always does. You're trying to make sure it doesn't. Your objective is to try and restore the status quo ante. Mm. And you're usually failing. So you're desperately trying to ensure that life carries on. Because the great virtue of British politics is how boring it is. You know, this is the beauty. This is why my contribution is dull compared to yours and yours, because you've got like 
amazing events to discuss. Mine is Maria Miller's resignation. And that's a great thing, you know, because boring politics is one of the world's greatest achievements. And do you think, John, that we can know in advance? I mean, you know, I have an idea that I would be good in a crisis. Do you think you can know in advance? Well, they do say you, you don't know, but um, there is some research on individual differences. Those people who might freeze are said to be 10% of the crowd. I mean, I suppose I'm more interested in the, in the situational determinants, because um, social psychology, which is what I do, is more about the, the, the constraints or the inferences of the situation that make all people or most people behave in a kind of similar way rather than those individual differences that distinguish us. But yes, there are these individual differences and some people are said to freeze, some people are said to um, behave heroically and so on. But over and above that, there are these, these uh, situational determinants that lead to these, these collective behaviours. Because without that kind of explanation, without that kind of uh, pathway, we'd all be behaving, uh, all be behaving differently. There wouldn't be a kind of collective response. Um, so, yeah. You mentioned when we were speaking earlier that preparedness yeah. is the key. Will you talk to us a bit about how do we prepare yeah. for Well, I think, yeah, I think there's something to say. It's quite interesting that it, um, it relates to your, your example from the earthquake. It's, it was interesting to hear that there was this moment of breaking down of barriers between people who might have been prejudiced towards each other or the, the one, of the people, one of the people might have been prejudiced towards the other. And that is not uncommon. So then there's the question of how, does, how could we put into place the conditions that would allow that new sense of relationship to persist over time, because that's needed not just for, for itself, but to cope with the next crisis. So if one thinks again about community resilience, it's about not only the response at the time, but getting people to think about how, what they are going to do in the future which means forming bonds with others, right, and perhaps forming groups. I mean, it seems to be something about the situation, situations again, which makes make people come to feel like they are a group in the crisis, right? So what do we do when the crisis seems to have ebbed away to allow them to behave in a groupy way, in a positive way, for the future? And I think here, something more strategic, something more deliberate, something more political, if you like, is required. So, for example, preparedness might be enhanced if those active people in a, in a local community, I mean we're looking at a community in York that was affected by floods and the floods receded now, they're going to be flooded again in the future, they need a group to prepare, what are they going to do? They need a group who will meet regularly, has a name, has an identity, has a venue, has some kind of structure, has some kind of continuity that will allow them to act in an adaptive way just say in government, you spend a lot of time doing that. And I recently wrote the speech for Tessa Jal, where she, on the 10th anniversary of 7-7, commemoration of the, the victims, and went through all the things that government had done between then and now to try and prepare for the next crisis. And I said to her, we've got to admit that we don't know whether any of this is going to be effective. Because it's all perfectly sensible, and it's been taken very seriously, and it's brought in expert advice for... And yet the thing we don't know is whether the next attack, such as when it strikes, is of the similar kind to the one we're preparing for. So we're obviously bound by the fact that we can't prophesy what the crisis will be precisely. 
Which is not to say you, there's nothing can be done, but there'll be things which you're not catering for. I think there's a difference in types of crisis, isn't there? Because I think certainly with, with terrorism, there's a move to lone shooters. That's been, been a change, and less, less suicide bombers, more lone shooters. But things like um, earthquakes, the same places that have had earthquakes before yeah. will have earthquakes again. Yeah. The same In Britain, the same places that have had floods will have floods again. Yeah. And so we kind of know that. So those kind of events, we yeah. can prepare for. You've got no excuse there. I think I think it's time to hear some questions for the floor. Um, ooh, thank you. You talked about how frequent and, and how regular we're seeing different crises happen. And I have been struck by the different types of coverage that different crises get from different parts of the world. And I was just wondering um, your viewpoints about why do some crises get more attention around the world than, than others when some could you know, be arguably more yeah. serious than others? Well, there are two dimensions in, from coverage point of view in uh, newspaper and television. One is gravity, which is obviously important news um, judgment, uh, and the other is interest. And by interest, and those two things can run against each other. And by interest, I mean you always newspapers are run much more by their readers than you think they are. The, the conventional view of newspapers is they're run by their proprietors, who give their readers what they get, and that just commercially, that's never going to work. If you try and push the readers too far, they'll just kick back and go somewhere else. So the brutal answer to some of those questions is because the readers won't be that interested. And when you've got a very grave crisis in somewhere uninteresting, obviously I don't mean that, you know what I mean, um, then you've got a news dilemma. Is Where do you put that in the newspaper? Chile, the miners, <coughs> down the thing. Well... How interesting is Chile to someone who lives in Basingstoke? Not very, actually. The Miners gives it a human face, an amazing story. Yes, that's interesting. So it's four or five days on the front page. But if it had been somehow less visual, it wouldn't have done. So very unsatisfactory answers, in fact. Is, is, you're quite right to note it. Uh, there are abundant examples of really serious crises that get very little coverage. And there are voices within newspapers, and I've been one of them, who will constantly go back and say, but what about that? Mm -hmm. We haven't mentioned that for ages. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, the Boko Haram is one that always gets me, the, the lost yeah. girls. I, mean, the I, lost I thought girls. that disappeared from the news far so too fast. quickly. Yeah, far too quickly. Absolutely. Because this keeps happening, I think it also increases the crisis we're facing in a, in a, in a weird way, in a, in a vicious circle, cycle, it's, it keeps breathing, uh, that organization. Uh, I want to give some examples. When uh, the t horrible Nice attacks happened, you know, that's yet another example of, you know, you don't know how terrorism is going to happen next time. So, so unexpected in the way it happened. Horrific. Around the same days, there were, again, horrible events in other parts of the world, starting with Baghdad, 200 deaths. And I, because I followed the social media in different countries, I realized there was a lot of reaction in the Middle East that Baghdad was not mentioned uh, enough, or other parts of the world were not mentioned enough alongside Nice. Now, what is dangerous is the next step. Then there are some people, seemingly normal, liberal, not liberal, but let's say mainstream people, who would say, oh, you see, they don't care about our deaths, then why are we caring for their deaths? Okay, so let's stop 
tweeting, let's stop caring, and that's the end of the story. That's when we break apart fully. So these things, that kind of indifference is, is very dangerous. I'm not sure that people wouldn't care. I think part of it is human psychology in the sense that, of course, cultures that are closer to us, cities that are closer, this is very normal, you know. People have relatives in France, people feel connected, this is quite normal. But I think we need to cultivate this feeling that the whole world is our family. You know, that we are at the same time global souls. We are world citizens. We are not only British or Turkish or Lebanese or this or that, but we are also beyond our national identities. So it's up to us to expand that definition of family. If we can do that, then people will tweet more about Baghdad and other parts of the world, and we can lessen this madness. Another question? In the program, though, you say the Barbican arose from the ashes of one of the other great fires, the Blitz. And the question I've got is... Uh, it's taken a generation to rebuild this part of London, and it was basically destroyed in the 1940s. And I wonder, when a community is totally destroyed, what is it that survives, or is it simply a name on the map? It raises an interesting question, because I think there's a distinction we should make between geographical communities and psychological communities. I mean, there's a tendency to talk about community as if it's this whole thing where everybody is part of the same thing and they all, they're all feel a part of the same thing, but of course they're not. I mean, um, to take examples of, uh, uh, of floods again, which we're doing some work on, you could have a flood in a geographical, geographical community and you have unequal uh, impacts. So some people's houses are ruined, others are not so much, and they don't really feel a common bond. Yet other people down the road might feel vulnerable um, and they feel psychologically close. Other people who might see themselves in the same social category might feel close and might form a psychological community, but not a geographical community. So, so yeah, they are, they are distinctively different things, and the one doesn't necessarily give you, give you the other. I mean, I know it's a very, very different example, but I'm intrigued by your question. Some of the, the writings that were left by Holocaust survivors, you know, the, the way they questioned this, why did I survive? People who are better than me you know, were killed in such an unfair way. I mean, Primo Levi's essays, his, his, his novels, I think it very much revolves around that question and, and some kind of guilt or loneliness that you can't express to the world. It's very tricky, isn't it? You know, who survives and why? Because we're always trying to s make sense of it and there's no sense, there's no reason. That's very difficult to digest. Thank you. I wanted to say I thought you were all really eloquent. Um, and it's a question, it's also a thought. Um, we, the language that you're speaking in is English. Um, but a lot of the crises that you're talking about are uh, events which have happened throughout the world. And I just, you talked about uh, the, sort of the British media and the Times. And, and I just wondered about the issue of, of language. And maybe perhaps we should all learn to be multilingual so that we can expand our capacity to be able to connect <coughs> to other to other kind of communities and I just I just wondered your thoughts about that about the fact that I, I can only speak for myself but I've kind of English and some French and a bit of Hebrew but that's about it I, are we limited do you think by our understandings of crisis by mm -hmm. our lack or our capacities to understand mm -hmm. other words except the ones that we are able to listen to and also communicate the entry point to a literature and to a yeah. culture is its language and you know you you know, limited acquaintance I have with other languages, that has been the best way into its 
culture, and that's definitely true. Um, we have very limited resources. I mean, when you're reporting, one of the great problems of, of um, the last 15 years or so in journalism around the world is the diminution of foreign news reporting. That is the real worry, that um, you've got smaller and smaller bureaus, fewer and fewer reporters, and once upon a time when you'd, you'd be able to afford to have 10 people sort of roaming the world, seeing what happened, not filing a story for three months, but, but then when, when it came, it was extraordinary. That doesn't happen anymore. So we are, I think our understanding is threatened by lack of knowledge. And, and the other thing that happens is, of course, the people out there are less expert than they were. So I worry about the declining expertise not just linguistic expertise, but um, but sense of deep knowledge of reporters out in the field. I think that we are seeing a slow fall in seriousness and, and experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried that we hear less and less different voices. Um, of course, I, I, I hear your question about language. In an ideal world, I wish many of us could speak multiple languages, but perhaps that's inevitable, as you said. But what is not inevitable, what can be changed is we could read writers who do not necessarily think like us, people who do not necessarily speak like us. That sameness is very dangerous. If we reduce our sources of knowledge to more or less the same people or similar sources, I think that's when troubles begin. Every nation state at the end of the day has its own official history, has its own top-down way of looking at things. In that regard, Israel is not different than Turkey or Germany is not you know, different than, um, than America. Every nation state does this. But what makes a democracy different is the multiplicity of voices. When we talk about history, when we talk about today, if I can freely go to a bookstore and find different interpretations of history or different voices freely, uncensored, you know, published, then that makes a huge difference. In that regard, I am very much against cultural boycotts. I don't like cultural boycotts because when there's a cultural boycott, what we're doing is to diminish voices. We don't allow the people in that country, in another society, to hear different voices. And we're just letting them, you know, alone with only the dominant voices. I, uh, and I don't, I find it very dangerous, that especially on university soil, more and more speakers are being boycotted, vetoed, just because they have, yes, some of them have horrible views, but we should be able to hear those horrible views and speak back and make our own claims. So I'm worried that um, there's a narrowing down of voices, even in democracies. Hi, it's been a pleasure to listen to all of your different approaches. Um, as you were speaking, I had the thought as well of the proportions of people that act in a certain way in a crisis, so the 10% that will act in a positive way, 10% that will act in a negative way, and I think then 80% will act in a way, when will act in either way when guided by someone else. So when we're thinking about that figure, those figures in relation to crises now, I wonder how, how do we recognise whether the 10% we're following are the negative or the positive because, because from both ends there is rhetoric and they are showing signs of leadership yeah. and it's when the 80% in the middle are coming from a wide range of communities and are themselves as individuals members of many different psychological communities whether that's religion or whether it's just 
any values at all, how do how can people reflect in a way to find which leader to follow? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm often asked about um, social influence and the power of demagogues, and, and probably Phil is going to say something on this as well. But um, I think the power of demagogues and the, and the power of small minorities to influence the majority is actually constrained by psychological factors. I mean, there was a study done of the speeches of Hitler and the speeches of Mussolini, and it was said by the, uh, the most famous crowd psychologist of all time, who's a person called Gustave Le Bon, that the way to win over a crowd and the way to sway a crowd and to influence them for a demagogue is to be simple and repetitive in your speech. And both Hitler and Mussolini claimed, Le Bon is my teacher, and my speeches are simple and repetitive, and you can see you know, the pictures of, of the crowds adoring the two of them and, and, and the apparent obedience that they, they, they invoked. But if you look closely at those speeches, they were repetitive and they were simple, but the content was tailored to the precise identities of the audience they were speaking to. So Hitler's speeches were about blood and soil and elbow room and motifs that made sense to the culture. Mussolini's speeches are about the Roman history and, and, and the references to things that made sense to, to his culture. Now, if you just swap those round, the simple, repetitive nature of the speech wouldn't have got you anywhere. So the actual content matters. So that kind of tells you that there has to be some kind of connection, some kind of identification, and the job of the leaders to be influential is to position themselves as prototypical, which means standing for being an embodiment of that community in order to say, well, this is who we are and this is what we should do. To, to come in from the outside and say, well, follow me, it's just not going to get you anywhere. Uh, the John's absolutely right about those speeches, and um, they were nobody who came to those rallies were, wasn't already convinced of what they were going to say. It was an, it wasn't an act of persuasion that was taking place. It was an act of confirmation, uh, and that's what made it so frightening. Um, and great leaders do embody a, a moment. And the, the, my favourite example is Elizabeth I. It's a fabulous speech that Elizabeth I made at Tilbury with the Spanish Armada massing in the Channel. And there was, as you can imagine, the, uh, the, the court regarded this, in, her, in Elizabeth's own words, this weak and feeble woman as nowhere near the capacity of the leader required for, for a nation at war. And she gives this fabulous speech. It's only 250 words long. Um, but it says so much, in which he says, with very evident irony, I may have the weak and feeble body of a woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England too. And it's a magnificent speech, and all of our depictions of Elizabeth today derive from that speech. She was, there's a scholarly debate about whether she was wearing armour when she delivered it, which is very unlikely, but that was the sort of sense that it gave, and she embodied England in that moment, and she embodied resolution. Uh, and all of those attributes which at the time and today would be regarded as not feminine, she absolutely smashed through them. And it's a wonderful uh, piece of leadership embodiment for that reason. That's all for this London's Burning podcast. Many thanks to Dr John Drury, Philip Collins, Elif Shafak and Eleanor O'Keefe and to the Barbican Centre for hosting the talk. You can listen and download other podcasts from this series by searching for Artichoke Trust on iTunes. Thanks for listening.